Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Madeline Bell, president and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, otherwise known as CHOP. Today, we talk about creating a culture of innovation in an industry where it can be dangerous to screw up, the difference between talking to donors and politicians, and how the power dynamics between doctors and nurses are changing. Thanks so much for being here, Madeline. Happy to be here. Um, I'm sitting in the Seacrest Studios in the atrium of the hospital, and it's a uh, glass enclosed, but the ceiling is not enclosed, so you will hear little kids and noises in the background. So tell me, what are you in charge of? The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is the first children's hospital in our nation, often ranked uh, one of the top children's hospital. And the word hospital is a little deceiving because we're also a research network and a network of over 50 locations where care is provided outside of the hospital. So in the world of children's hospitals, what makes CHOP unique? I think it's really that our focus is on innovation and research. So it's sort of breakthroughs that happen in the lab and get translated from the bench to the bedside. Children are born with genetically linked diseases, and we've invested for decades in gene therapy. So really replacing the, the defective gene with a good gene uh, to really literally cure genetically linked diseases in children. And so recently, uh, a drug was approved that was all done, uh, all the research was done here at our uh, research institute to cure a genetically linked blindness. How do you impact that work? Like, is it your go ahead? Do you, do you make decisions that, um, that prioritize, you know, one set of research over another? Or is it more driven in many levels below you? <laughs> Well, I think it's sort of setting the culture of innovation and the expectations that our job is to really cure and discover treatments for major uh, children's diseases. So it's sort of the big picture and then creating a culture to allow innovation to occur. And then at the sort of the next level is to really ensure that I provide the right resources, space, people, equipment, um, funding, to fuel their, the ideas of our physician scientists. So the sort of more vague part of that, how, how do you create that culture of innovation? Well, I think it's interesting because we're in a hospital. So in some ways, we want people to practice with perfection and to do things sort of a standard way all the time um, to ensure that uh, there's no harm that happens to patients. But on the other side, we're also saying to people, make mistakes, learn from them, fail fast, and be really innovative, be creative, and think outside of the box. So it's actually a really interesting recipe of sort of looking at um, creating a culture where you, you know, relentlessly standardize and ensure that things happen the same way so that harm doesn't come to children, but also get people to be creative and innovative. And that's sort of how our secret sauce comes together. What is a great example of like a failure that you're glad you let happen? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I mean, I can't tell you how often on the research side, uh, there might be a hypothesis about, um, you know, for example, uh, one of the things that we do is um, look for genomic targets. Um, we identify genes that are specific to a person and look for potential drugs that might interact with that gene. And uh, there have been times where we thought, well, gee, we think that this genetic target will work with this drug, but in a clinical trial, it ends up not working. 
And sometimes that's very costly and um, it's really disappointing for the team who had that idea. But again, I think the key is, okay, learn from it. How can you uh, incorporate that into the next uh, experiment? And, um, you know, I, I think that in other organizations, people might pull up stakes and say, well, we can't do that anymore because we failed and we've, you know, spent a lot of money and gotten a lot of people involved. Um, but for us, it's about the, you know, the sort of the process of innovation. I want to talk about the money in a little bit, but first I want to talk um, about your career. You started as a pediatric nurse. Why did you become a nurse? I always wanted to be a nurse as a very young child. I was one of those people who, um, you know, when somebody got hurt, I always felt really comfortable and calm to sort of help them out. And my mom was very squeamish. And when any of my younger siblings would get hurt, she would always call for me. And so I guess I sort of realized as a young person, like, wow, I, I kind of have an affinity for this. Um, and that's what I wanted to do and, and became a nurse. But then over time, I sort of, as a nurse, started asking questions about, well, why does the healthcare system work like this? And how can I be a part of the solution versus um, sort of stating the obvious, like, oh, these are the things that don't work. And um, so I sort of had this curiosity and this drive for how I could be a part of, you know, informing what happens in healthcare and and having impact at a much broader level. So as you became more of an administrator uh, and still like sort of saw these things as problems to fix, did it become clearer to you like why they were problems? Like what what slows things down or why change is hard to make happen? Why certain, you know, patient delivery systems are the way they are, even if you want them to be different? Like, did it make in some ways more sense to you as you moved away from nursing or did the same, did the problems look the same? Oh, they definitely look different from a different vantage point because they were more solvable to me. Um, most of the time they were sort of historical ways of doing things or people issues that uh, specific people who decided they were going to do it a certain way and then nobody wanted to come in and have that questioning attitude like, why do we do it this way? Let's, let's improve it. Um, so for me, it looked very, very different um, from a different vantage point. Take me a little bit through your career arc. I'm assuming you didn't go from nurse to CEO. <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, so eventually, uh, after being a nurse for about six, seven years, I went into administration and I actually worked in planning and new business development uh, and an, at another health system. Uh, I started my career at Children's Hospital at the bedside and then I left for about six years. And then it was really calling me back because... We're very long on purpose here. You know, our mission is just so strong to take care of patients, to do research, to educate the next generation of pediatric providers. And it just kind of called me back. Uh, and then when I came back here, I did a number of different um, roles as a vice president. But one of the things that I think that really helped me is I took on a lot of lateral roles. Somebody would say to me, well, would you like to take over the revenue cycle. And I knew nothing about it. And I said, yes, because I wanted to learn and stretch myself, never really realizing. I mean, these were not sort of chess moves on, you know, on my part, uh, but they all helped inform me to the point where I could be the CEO. Uh, so I, I, I moved around and did things laterally, certainly moved up. And then I was, um, I became um, chief Hop operating officer in 2007 and I did that role for eight years here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And then in 2015, I was uh, promoted to CEO. 
At what point in that process did you kind of realize, oh, I might be on track to be to be CEO? Well, I'll be honest about it because it's something that <laughs> I coach, I <laughs> coach other women. It was other people thinking I could do it before I believed that myself, um, which is something I'm constantly coaching other women to work against. Uh, so it was this point where I started to get recruited to other hospitals to be CEO. And after about the fourth time, and uh, one time I, a couple of times I went out and, and sort of talked to people and realized like, oh, this is really interesting and they really want me. And then I started to step back and say, well, maybe this is something I can do. And I, in retrospect, I'm disappointed that I didn't come to the conclusion myself and went after it. But it was really, I waited for the validation from somebody else from the outside. And again, this is something that I'm constantly telling other women, believe in yourself first and other people will believe in you. So I, I do use this as a sort of a, a lesson for other people. So how do you think your nursing background impacts the way you approach your job now? Well, I really think that nurses, uh, by my nature, have real empathy for their patients and their families. And I think that's such a key ingredient for a leader. And for me to have empathy, not only for our patients and their families, but for our frontline staff who are there taking care of them or for our researchers in the lab, and, you know, for me, I have to work hard at make sure, making sure I have awareness of what's happening on the front lines um, to continue to have not just that empathy, but have the experiences that give me the empathy uh, for them. So just, you know, really being up close and personal. Um, it's very easy to be in the corner office. I literally have a corner office. I have a bathroom and a, and a mini fridge. I mean, I could just stay there all day and never have to leave. But I really work hard to try to um, have lunch on a monthly basis with frontline staff, go out on the un inpatient units and walk, walk around talking to people. Um, I have a good catch program where I meet people who do uh, good safety catches, so a harm from reaching the patient. And it's, these are all sort of touch points for me to make sure that, yeah, you can be empathetic, but uh, until you have the real stories and talk to the real people on the front lines – you don't really have any material. And so for me, it's about getting that situational awareness of, in terms of what's happening. Yeah. So CHOP is is not just any big respected hospital. It's just it's a hospital just for children. How is leading a hospital for children different than leading a hospital that's for, you know, everyone? Well, everybody who works here, all 16,000 of us, have made a decision that we want to work with children. And there's something very unifying in that uh, children are everywhere and something very inspiring. And, you know, for, for adults, when they have surgery, as a nurse or as a physician, you're always saying, it's time for you to get out of bed and walk around. But for children, you know, they, after they have surgery, your job is to try to keep them from jumping out of bed. And there's just something very um, inspiring, very exciting, and very hopeful about um, working with children and the fact that all of us have made that our decision. And I use that for leverage as a leader is, uh, you know, we're, many times we're saying in a discussion, all right, what's best for the children? It's all about the children. And it's, uh, it, it, it does help unify us as a team and, and give us our sense of purpose. What are the things that kids need um, from a hospital that 
I mean, you just named one, sort of the, uh, helping them not jump out of their beds. But what are what are other things that I, I might not think of? Well, for children, um, there you know, a hospital is obviously a scary place and could represent um, you know not going to school or playing or some, or pain. And so we do everything we can to try to normalize the hospital experience. So just a minute ago, I walked by a volunteer with his dog. And so dogs regularly go into the inpatient units, jump up on the beds with the kids. The kids can talk to the dogs about their experiences. Uh, we have music therapy, art therapy, um, child life, who are people who, through play and diversional activities, help children cope with their illness. Some of the children here have terminal illnesses. And so helping them to work through that with what we call child life and creative art therapies is a whole different dimension to children's hospitals that you don't see in adult hospitals. I think the other thing I would say is that our patients and their parents are digital natives. And, you know, an adult hospital, maybe the average patient is 65 and they're used to calling a call center or waking, waiting a long time in a waiting room to be seen or um, interacting in a different way. And so we also have to work hard to ensure that we meet um, our patients with the type of experience that they expect. So I read that the hospital has expanded 40% since you were named CEO. I wonder if you can take me through that the decision-making process, not how you expanded, but the sort of how you even got to the point where you knew this was something CHOP should do. Well, I think there's incredible responsibility with being who we are, uh, somebody who's creating significant discoveries and breakthroughs through the, for the future of children. And so perpetuating that mission requires us to continue to grow and to have the resources to invest uh, in that whole perpetual cycle of bench to bedside. And so really, I stepped back and said, well, I, I don't have a specific number in my head. I mean, we'll, we'll end this fiscal year at $3 billion in revenue. So I didn't say we have to be X billions of dollars. But what I questioned, what the question I asked myself was, what do we need in order to continue to invest in our mission to create the next breakthroughs? And then how do we grow to allow that to happen? And, you know, for me, it's all about making sure we get the best talent and, you know, really being a talent scout and saying to that talent, we have the best facilities and equipment uh, for you to be able to do your job, but more importantly, the culture that allows you to uh, be creative and, and be driven, you know, for discoveries. How did expanding the campus, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about what, you know, how you expanded it, but it, how did that change your responsibilities? Well, it just increased my scope of responsibilities just to more people. And uh, that means that I have to have a good team of people that I delegate to. I always tell people they're as good as the people who report to them. So you, ha I have to trust them and I have to delegate them to make decisions I sometimes tell my team I'm kind of the president of the last to know club and that's what I want to be because that means that decisions are being made at a lower level and I'm empowering them to, to, do, uh, to do what they know how to do best. And so, yes, it stretches me because we're just bigger and there's more people and, and sometimes more issues that, that come up. But I think I handle that by making sure that I have the right team below me and that most importantly, they're empowered to, to make their own decisions. 
I think I read that you were trying to raise one billion dollars at at some point. And I don't know where in the process you are, if that was um, an accurate report. But how do you how involved are you in, in wooing big donors? Is that a big part of your job? That's certainly a part of my job to um, attract people who want to give back to CHOP in many different ways. Um, but an important part of our revenue stream is philanthropy. And I always say to people that, you know, I think philanthropists want to give to a winning team. And so we want to show to that, show them that we can do something with their precious resources. And my job is to inspire them, to, to inspire them uh, about the work we're doing. And I always feel like there's a connection I could make with anyone. Maybe music is really important in their life and, and supporting music therapy is what they want to do. Or maybe it's, it's you know, developing uh, a drug or a vaccine or a device or some other breakthrough. And, and so that's my job is to, to, to talk with those people and inspire them about our work and, and convince them that being part of our team is, is something good for them. Talk to me a little bit about um, competition. You don't think about competition in a healing profession, but obviously you're competing with other institutions and competing for, you know, donor dollars. Is that a, is that, is competition a driving force for you? In some respects, competition is, is, is a driving force in that, you know, we want to be sort of that race for the cure in, in every area. Um, I think that's an important source of pride for us. Um, we compete for talent for sure. Uh, there's a very limited pool of pediatric subspecialists who are scientists in the United States or even in the world because we, we do recruit from all over the world. In fact, we get patients from all over the world. And so I would say that the biggest competition I feel is that competition for recruiting the best talent and then retaining them. And I always say people are trying to raid our talent all of the time. And so I, I want to have a, an environment where they want to stay here and they know that I believe in them and help them develop their career and give them the resources they need to put their ideas into action. But I would say that's the biggest competition I feel. I remember reading a piece once that it turns out that it's not money, but it's um, principals that do the most to attract talent to to, um, to schools, which surprised me. I just hadn't thought about that as being so important to teachers, but it makes sense that it is. Are there are there things that attract talent there that are maybe not obvious to me? Well, I think it's two things. One is the sense of purpose, which I've mentioned before, but but the but the other thing that attracts people is sort of this innovation ecosystem you know this if when they come here it's not just them in their lab or them at the bedside by themselves but it's all this incredibly great you know all these incredibly great people who are really smart and driven and creative and want to work together uh, to solve problems for children and what I hear from people when they come here is they say um, we came here because of the really deep, broad bench that you have of physician scientists, and we want to be part of that. Or nurses who say, you know, we want to be part of, of a group that's doing really innovative and exciting things. So let's talk a little bit about um, your management style. Uh, your job sounds huge. How many people report to you? I have about a dozen people reporting to me. And for me, it's all about getting the right people 
empowering them to do their work and, and ensuring that they let you know when, what you need to know, um, and to, to sort of hire people that have that right judgment on, um, when they need to escalate to you. I think that my time is best spent, you know, helping people to sort of prioritize their work and really thinking about, um, you know, broadening, broadening their aperture to sort of think big picture, um, and not sort of getting, you know, too stuck in their lanes. And so I think, you know, as, as I, as I think about how, as we grow and we've grown, it's really just all about having the right team. First of all, hiring people who I, who I trust and, you know, working to, to continue to foster that tr- trust. But secondly, being very clear, like these are the things that I need to, if I'm ever going to hear about something on the news, I want to hear it here first. Right. And, you know, there's certain filters, um, that, that I, that I use with people, but, um, it's, it's just usually a conversation and then them understanding, you know, who I am and, and, you know, what makes sense to escalate. I I think that I, I, I say these words, I trust you. I trust you to make this decision. And I trust that if something goes wrong, you're just going to pick up the phone or text me and let me know. Yeah. Um, how do you stay organized? Well, it's always a, um, an ongoing challenge for me. Um, I'm somebody who's really good at multitasking and pivoting from topic to topic pretty seamlessly. But even as as good as I am at doing some of those things, I certainly feel challenged and have days where, you know, I have to be on in front of people uh, just continually from early in the morning till late at night, you know, in front of large audiences. And those are the days that I get most challenged. Um, Again, I would answer it just like I answer any question was it's really about the people around you that are helping you to be um, more organized. And so I have a great assistant who is constantly not just organizing me, but anticipating what I might need next. And I think that's really important. And every Monday morning, she and I sit down and look at the week and make sure we're both in sync and what I need. And um, because then I hit the ground running. So in terms of delegating, what are the parts of your job that you delegate because you think, actually, this is not my strength? And what are the parts that you delegate because you just don't have time to do them, but actually you wish you could? Well, I think I'm more of an intuitive decision maker. So, you know, I like to hire people that have strengths where I might have gaps. And so people who have really strong analytic skills or make more analytic-based decisions. Um, And so I know myself and what my, my, my style is. And so try to hire people who think and act differently, who have different skill sets. And I think that makes, you know, that sort of whole group of people together that makes us a much, much stronger team. And so I think that's an area where I know that about myself. And so then I, I really work hard to listen to somebody who might be really analytical and arrive at a, a decision in a different way than I do. Um, and I try to incorporate that into my overall decision-making. As an example, one of the things we're doing is building a new patient tower. And, you know, I've had years of operating, you know, a hospital. And so I have a lot of intuition about growth and what we might need. And I had a number in my head, I think this is where we need to be. And then somebody on my team who's just really analytical looked at it many different ways with lots of different data points uh, as input and came to a, a, you know, a, a different number. And I said, okay, all right. I think that's sort of a better way to get to it. And uh, I'll accept that. And, you know, there's something to be said for experience and intuition, but um, 
I want to make more data-driven decisions here. And, um, and many things that we do, they are data-driven, but in terms of, you know, my leadership team. And so that's why, you know, having this great group of people with lots of different skills and competencies is, is so powerful. I have been at Slate for a long time, not as long as you've been at the Children's Hospital, but for a while. And one thing I found being here is that it's easy to lose sight of how people outside of the organization see the organization, both positively and negatively, like what its value is, what its reputation is. Being at CHOP for such a long time for you, are there are there drawbacks to that? Are there ways that you make sure kind of not to have tunnel vision? Well, I think one of the ways that helps me is I sit on two boards, a corporate board and um, another uh, on the Federal Reserve Board and on a, on a board of a corporation. And those two boards, um, first of all, get me in a completely different space, completely different industry with different people around the table. Um, and regardless, though, a lot of the issues, the risks associated with the businesses, the people issues, the strategy um, have a lot of similar similarities. But for me, it's a great way to sort of have a, a much broader view of what's happening in the world. I also spent a lot of time outside of CHOP on Capitol Hill, um, really advocating for children and um, you know, meeting with a lot of people and making sure that I am disciplining myself to stay to spend some time with people outside of the children's hospital world and outside of the hospital world. In your activism, I know you lobbied against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. How do you think about talking to politicians? Is it different than when you go talk to donors and when you're speaking to your staff? Like, is there a certain approach that you have? Well, it's interesting because I just um, met, we have, in this area, we've had a, a big change in, in the people in Congress. We had six new people. And so um, what I was trying to do is explain to them uh, the issues that I'm focused on related to children, but just to remind people, regardless of what side of the aisle they sit on, that children are our future taxpayers, um, will be the people in our military in the future, will be the healthcare workers taking care of all of us as we age. And, you know, talking about the importance of investing in children um, now and why that pays off for society. And I, I lean in on that lots more when I'm talking to a, members of Congress and elected officials at the state or federal level. I think for donors, it's much more about inspiring them about the stories and the possibilities. So the narrative is a little bit different, not completely, but definitely um, more focused on, you know, why you need to invest in children from a policy perspective with, with lawmakers and why you need to invest in children with, with prospective donors, sort of talking about impact, making impact for, for future generations. How do you make sure you know what the challenges, financial challenges, um, or other challenges are that your patients and your families are facing? Like, do you have a, a mechanism for actually, like, talking to them and hearing from, you know, just your, your regular patients? We have formal mechanisms and informal mechanisms. I mean, I get a lot of feedback for families directly. And in fact, I always say to my assistant, like, how do they all get my email? How do they all know how to reach out to me? But I make sure that every single one of them that, that contacts me, regardless of how they do it, that I acknowledge it, that I listen to it, and that I get it right away to the person who can um, solve their issue. But I'm often asking you know, what percentage of our patients are having str struggles with paying their co-pays. Um, we have a family advisory council that we developed decades ago and were really a leader in, in bringing the family voice to um, overall 
policy making here at our hospital. We have a youth advisory council where our patients do everything from saying, this is the kind of meals that we like, and here's the kind of programming we like. So I think it's formal and informal ways of ensuring that we're getting um, regular feedback. So you're the first woman to lead CHOP. Do you identify in that way? And does that does that affect how you do your job? I certainly did early. You know, I'll be in the role four years in, in, in June. and But when I first, I would say the first year, it w- I was really... Th- cognizant of it. You know, it was 160, well, now it's 164 year history and being the first woman, um, you know, in 160 years that, that led the hospital. It, it was something I, I acknowledged to myself, thought about, and then I walked down a hall to get to my office with pictures of men since 1855 lined on each side of the hallway. And so I am reminded of that when I when I walk into my office every day. Do you approach hiring thinking about trying to, you know, surround yourself with uh, some women? <laughs> well, for me, uh, diversity and inclusion is a really big part of my leadership platform. In fact, I formed and still chair our diversity council and it's a you know a group of diverse people who are really telling me what's happening in my organization so that I continue to have my finger on the pulse. And uh, But for me, it's about being very, very thoughtful to um, ensure that we have diversity at our leadership level, at our board level, um, at every level, level of leadership. And I don't think you move the dial until the people around the table look different. And we have all these wonderful programs, employee resource groups, and you name it, that is really focused on um, diversity and inclusion. But I think until the leaders and the board members um, are diverse, that you really just don't make the impact that, um, that you, you, know, you seek to make. Um, so there's a sense, you know, for non-medical prof- professional people like me, that the relationship between um, doctors and nurses can be fraught in part because of gender and power dynamics. I'm, I'm curious what that looks like on the ground and if it's changing and if you've seen it change over your career. Well, I'm really hopeful because I think at the bedside, there's so much more of a partnership than there ever has been. I mean, 30 years ago or more when I was a nurse, there that power differential was really palpable. And now I actually got a, a letter from a mother, which I just love. And she said, you know, my child's uh, child that's been to many different hospitals. And I, in the first minute, few minutes of my child being at your hospital, um, you know, the, the, the team does rounds at the bedside. So they talk about the patient. And a nurse came in and she interrupted the physician and said, this is the mother telling me the story. Oh, I'm sorry, I got to rounds late, but could you start over? Um, and the mom said in her note to me, I cringed because I was waiting for that nurse to be dressed down by the physician. And he respectfully said, oh, absolutely, and started over again for the entire team to make sure that one nurse you know, could hear it. And she said, I know I'm in a different place. I know that there's truly valuing everyone on the team and it's true partnership. And I, it was really a source of absolute pride for me when I read that and certainly shared it broadly um, throughout the organization. Um, so that I think that power differential has changed a lot, and that's really um, something thoughtful, thoughtfully done. Um, but when I became CEO and I was a nurse, I did have people say to me, well, how are doctors ever going to report to you because you're a nurse? But they respect me as the CEO. They know I'm their boss. I value their input, and it all seems to work. So you have a blog. I don't know how you have time to blog, um, but what is it for? 
So my blog is called Heels of Success, Elevating Women in the Workplace. And, you know, I would notice that when I would go out and do talks about um, advancing women in the workplace to the C-suite or to boards or just in general, I would look out in the audience and I would see all these women taking notes. In fact, I remember one specific time I was at Villanova University, which is my alma mater undergrad, and I was doing a talk as part of this women's leadership program. And I looked out into the audience, there was probably 150 women, and they were all taking notes, writing down everything I said. And it was a pivotal point for me that I thought to myself, wow, they're not getting this information or else they wouldn't be taking notes like this. I need to do more. And, you know, at the end of talks like that, I'd have a long line of women saying to me, would you mentor me? Would you mentor me? And I started to realize that I could probably only mentor about one or two people at the t- at a time. So it was a way of sort of taking my mentoring sessions that I've done with people or the questions that people, especially young women, ask me and turning it into a blog post so that if I, it's kind of, you know, amplifying my voice in a different way. Um, and if a young woman comes to me and says, I'd love you to mentor me, I would say, well, you know what? A lot of my mentoring sessions are, are actually turned into a blog. So go to my, go to my blog. And it makes me feel like I am giving back, but not stretching myself to the point where um, I'm overwhelming myself with mentoring women. I'd love to hear a little bit about what, it, how you do mentor women in, in terms of like the, the one or two that you can take on at a time. What does that look like? Like what, ti- what kind of time do you spend with them? What do you, what do you feel like you're trying to teach them? There's quite a few that are, are, are physicians, uh, women physicians who are looking for leadership positions. Uh, those are the, not the only, but the type of, of people that I work for, work with when I mentor them. And uh, sometimes it's just really basic stuff, but I always, they're all, sometimes they'll, I, there's one woman I'm mentoring and she works in financial services and she comes with a, you know, with an agenda and she's really organized and, and has very specific questions that she sends me in advance. And the first thing I try to do is kind of deescalate the drive and determination <laughs> in the conversation and say, okay, like, let's talk about how, you know, how you're feeling you know, how do you feel with your boss? What types of, you know, questions does he ask you? I mean, how comfortable you are in that relationship? And, um, you know, let's talk about your colleagues a little bit. And I really try to to not make it really formal and organized, but try to have a, a nice conversation. But at the end, hopefully I can give them some pearls of wisdom or some aha moments about maybe, you know, you need to be more vulnerable when you're with your boss. You know, like be, have it be okay that you can say, I don't know the answer, but I'll get you that answer. And so that's sort of the type of discussion that I like to have. Thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk and, and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It was really a lot of fun. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening.